Chapter Sixteen of A Son at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad Horner. A Son at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter Sixteen. Campton sat with his friend Dastrey in the latter's pleasant little entresol, full of Chinese lacquer and Venetian furniture. Dastry, in the last days of January, had been sent home from his ambulance with an attack of rheumatism, and when it became clear that he could no longer be of use in the mud and cold of the army zone, he had reluctantly taken his place behind a desk at the Ministry of War. The friends had dined early so that he might get back to his night shift, and they sat over coffee and liquors the mist of their cigars floating across lustrous cabinet fronts and the worn gliding of slender consuls on the other side of the hearth young bolston sunk in an armchair smoked and listened it always comes back to the same thing campton was saying nervously what right have useless old men like me sitting here with my cigar by this good fire to preach blood and butchery to boys like george and your nephew again and again during the days since mrs brant's visit he had turned over in his mind the same torturing question how was he to answer that last taunt of hers not long ago paul dastrey would have seemed the last person to whom he could have submitted such a problem Dastry in the black August days, starting for the front in such a frenzy of baffled blood-lust, had remained for Campton the type of man with whom it was impossible to discuss the war. But three months of hard service, imposte de secure, and along the awful battle-edge had sent him home with a mind no longer befogged by personal problems. He had done his utmost and knew it, and the fact give him the professional calm which keeps surgeons and nurses steady through all the horrors they are compelled to live among those few months have matured and mellowed him more than a lifetime of paris he leaned back with half-closed lids quietly considering his friend's difficulty i see your idea is that being unable to do even the humble kind of job that i've been assigned to you've no right not to try to keep your boy out of it if you can well by any honourable means dastrey laughed faintly and campton reddened the word's not happy i admit i wasn't thinking of that i was considering how the meaning had evaporated out of lots of our old words as if the general smash-up had broken their stoppers so many of them you see said dastrey smiling we'd taken good care not to uncork for centuries since i've been on the edge of what's going on fifty miles from here a good many of my own words have lost their meaning and i'm not prepared to say where honour lies in a case like yours he mused a moment and then went on what would george's view be campton did not immediately reply not so many weeks ago he would have welcomed the chance of explaining that george's view thank god had remained perfectly detached and objective and that the cheerful acceptance of duties forcibly imposed on him had not in the least obscured his sense of the fundamental injustice of his being mixed up in the thing at all but how could he say this now if george's view were still what his father had been in 
the habit of saying it was then he held that view alone Campton himself no longer thought that any civilized man could afford to stand aside from such a conflict as far as i know he said george hasn't changed his mind boston stirred in his armchair knocked the ash from his cigar and looked up at the ceiling whereas you dastry suggested yes said campton i feel differently you speak of the difference of having been in contact with what's going on out there but how can anybody not be in contact who has any imagination any sense of right and wrong do these pictures and hangings ever shut it out from you or those books over there when you turn to them after your day's work perhaps they do because you've got a real job a job you've been ordered to do and can't not do but for a useless drifting devil like me my god the sights and the sounds of it are always with me there are a good many people who wouldn't call you useless mr campton said bolston campton shook his head i wish there were any healing in the kind of thing i'm doing perhaps there is to you to him it appears to come naturally to love your kind bolston laughed service is of no use without conviction that's one of the uncomfortable truths that this stir-up has brought to the surface i was meant to paint pictures in a world at peace and i should have more respect for myself if i could go on unconcernedly doing it instead of pining to be in all the places where i'm not wanted and should be of no earthly use that's why he paused looked about him and sought understanding in dastry's friendly gaze that's why i respect george's opinion which really consists in not having any and simply doing without comment the work assigned to him the whole thing is so far beyond human measure that one's individual rage and revolt seem of no more use than a woman's scream at an accident she isn't in even while he spoke campton knew he was arguing only against himself he did not in the least believe that any individual sentiment counted for nothing at such a time and astry really spoke for him in rejoicing every one can at least contribute an attitude as you have my dear fellow bolston's here to confirm it bolston grunted his assent an attitude an attitude campton retorted the word is revolting to me anything a man like me can do is too easy to be worth doing and as for anything one can say how dare one say anything in the face of what is being done out there to keep this room and this fire and this ragged end of life safe for such survivals as you and me he crossed to the table to take another cigar as he did so he laid an apologetic pressure on his host's shoulder men of our age are the chorus of the tragedy dastry we can't help ourselves as soon as i open my lips to blame or praise i see myself in white petticoats with a long beard held on by an elastic goading on the combatants in a cracked voice from a safe corner of the ramparts on the whole i'd soon be spinning among the women well said dastry getting up i've got to get back to my spinning at the ministry where by the way there are some very pretty young women at the distaff it's extraordinary how much better pretty girls type than plain ones i see now why they get all the jobs the three went out into the winter blackness they were used by this time to the new paris to extinguished lamps shuttered windows deserted streets 
the almost total cessation of wheeled traffic. All through the winter, life had seemed in suspense everywhere, as much on the battlefront as in the rear. Day after day, week after week of rain and sleet and mud, day after day, week after week of vague non-committal news from west and east, everywhere the enemy baffled but still menacing, everywhere death, suffering, destruction, without any perceptible oscillation of the scales, any compensating hope of good to come out of the long, slow, endless waste. The benumbed and darkened Paris of those February days seemed the visible image of a benumbed and darkened world. Down the empty asphalt sheeted with rain and rare street lights stretched interminable reflections. The three men crossed the bridge and stood watching the rush of the Seine. Below them gloomed the vague bulk of deserted bathhouses, unlit barges, river steamers out of commission. The Seine, too, had ceased to live. Only a single orange gleam, low on the water's edge, undulated on the jetty waves like a streamer of seaweed. The two Americans left Dastry at his ministry, and the painter strolled on to Bolston's lodging before descending to the underground railway. He, whom his lameness had made so heavy and indolent, now limped about for hours at a time over wet pavements and under streaming skies. These midnight tramps had become a sort of expiatory need to him. Out there, out there, if they had these wet stones under them they think it was the floor of heaven he used to muse driving on obstinately through rain and darkness the thought of out there besieged him day and night the phrase was always in his ears wherever he went he was pursued by visions of that land of doom visions of fathomless mud rat-hunted trenches freezing nights under the sleety sky men dying in the barbed wire between the lines or crawling out to save a comrade and being shattered to death on the return his collaboration with boston had brought campton into close contact with these things he knew by heart the history of scores and scores of young men of george's age who were doggedly suffering and dying a few hours away from the palais royal office where their records were kept some of these histories were so heroically simple that the sense of pain was lost in beauty as though one were looking at suffering transmuted into poetry but others were abominable undurable in their long-drawn useless horror stories of cold and filth and hunger of ineffectual effort of hideous mutilation of men perishing of thirst in a shell-hole and half-dismembered bodies dragging themselves back to shelter only to die as they reached it Worst of all were the perpetually recurring reports of military blunders, medical neglect, carelessness in high places, the torturing knowledge of the lives that might have been saved if this or that officer's brain, this or that surgeon's hand, had acted more promptly, an impression of waste, confusion, ignorance, obstinacy, prejudice, and the indifference of selfishness or of moral fatigue, emanated from these narratives written home from the front or faltered out by white lips on hospital pillows the friends of french art especially since they had enlarged their range had to do with young men accustomed to the freest exercise of thought and criticism a nation in arms does not judge a war as simply as an army of professional soldiers 
all these young intelligences were so many subtly adjusted instruments for the testing of the machinery of which they formed a part and not one accepted the results passively yet in one respect all were agreed the had to be of the first day was still on every lip the german menace must be met chance willed that theirs should be the generation to meet it on that point speculation was vain and discussion useless the question that stirred them all was how the country they were defending was helping them to carry on the struggle there the evidence was clearly clear the comment often scathingly explicit and campton bending still lower over the abyss caught a shuddering glimpse of what might be must be if political blunders inertia tolerance perhaps even evil ambitions and connivances should at last outweigh the effort of the front there was no logical argument against such a possibility all civilizations had their orbit all societies rose and fell some day no doubt by the action of that law everything that made the world livable to campton and his kind would crumble in new ruins above the old yes but woe to them by whom such things came woe to the generation that bowed to such a law the powers of darkness were always watching and seeking their hour but the past was a record of their failures as well as of their triumphs campton brushing up his history remembered the great turning points of progress saw how the liberties of england had been born of the ruthless discipline of the norman conquest and how even out of the hideous welter of the french revolution and the napoleonic wars had come more freedom and a wiser order the point was to remember that the efficacy of the sacrifice was always in proportion to the worth of the victims and there at least his faith was sure he could not he felt leave his former wife's appeal unnoticed after a day or two he wrote to george telling him of mrs brant's anxiety and asking in vague terms if george himself thought any change in his situation probable his letter ended abruptly i suppose it's hardly time yet to ask for leave End of chapter 16 recording by chad horner